0: Madcap Flare offers cutting-edge technical authoring and publishing capabilities for today's technical
1: writers and content developers with advanced features to maximize authoring efficiency, content reuse, and multi-channel publishing.
0: By combining Madcap Central's cloud-based collaboration, publishing, and content management functionality, authors can improve content quality, gain greater insight into tasks and production schedules, work collaboratively with teams, host content, and automate processes. Madcap Flare and Madcap Central, combining the power of desktop authoring with cloud-based collaboration, publishing, and content management. Learn more at www.madcapsoftware.com.
1: This is the Leaf Podcast. Normal way we start off with the podcast is get people to say who they are, who they work for, that type of thing. So I guess that would be a good start.
0: Well, my name is Tom Johnson, and I'm based in Silicon Valley, California, which is San Jose, San Francisco area. And I work now currently at Amazon, the campus where a lot of devices are made. typically work on stuff related to the app store, like Fire TV app development, how people can create apps for... Fire TV. It's a way to convert your TV into a streaming media device uh, so you can watch Hulu and Netflix mm. and so forth. Before that, I worked at other companies around here and I've lived in other states. Uh, most people know me through my blog. I'd rather be writing.com and that's where I have the most fun.
1: So, are you affected by these <laughs> forest fires that are happening in California at the moment? Yeah,
0: I mean, not directly, but we get a lot of smoke down here. I'm a bicycle mm. commuter, so the last couple of times where i was commuting it was like pretty um smoky i probably shouldn't have been out there biking in it and i feel terrible for the people whose homes have been burned and who are like displaced i mean it must be really difficult it seems like fires have just become part of the common reality year round here and it's really unfortunate
1: yes is climate change coming to bite us well here it's just been cloud and rain and rain and rain today so a bit different people will know you from i'd rather be writing.com, and I thought a good place to start is to ask the reasons why you started the website, the posts, and what prompted you to write so much for that website.
0: You know, this is a question that's always sort of perplexed me because I've had this assumption throughout my career that technical writers mm. are at heart writers. And so why is it that people would ask, you know, why do you write so much? Well, don't we all love writing? Mm -hmm. And over the years, I've come to grips or come to see that maybe I have a different perspective or different take on writing and the purposes behind it. My background, I majored in English in college and then got an MFA in literary nonfiction writing. And my favorite subject or my favorite type of writing is the personal essay. I love the idea that somebody has some idea to test and they essay forth, right? Uh They go forth to try to get to the bottom of some idea or to figure out some truth of an idea or evaluate and test it out. And they kind of interweave Uh their own personal experience with experiences of others and what they read as they go forth testing out and trying to decide what to conclude about a, a question. And that form was something that I fell in love with a long time ago. And as I graduated from my program, right then the blogosphere was taking off and it took me a while to finally realize Mm -hmm. that the personal blog is, uh, or the professional blog, is the perfect format Mm -hmm. for the personal essay. Now, blogs have all kinds of different angles and, and the way people go about it, right? You can have really quick blog where you just throw down quotes or pictures, or you can have a really extensive blog where you have long form essays, or you can have corporate blogs. So there's quite a broad category. But I really do think that my blog suits my purpose as well in terms of being a place for me to occasionally write the personal essay form that I love. I don't always write it, but some of my longer ones, I hope are moving in that direction. And it's just, I've realized that when I don't write for a while on my blog I kind of lose my direction and uh, meaning mm-hmm. and, and so I, I get that back when I start writing more anyway.
1: I think that one of the best ways to understand something is to see if you can explain it to somebody else and a blog is a good way of doing it and another way is to present on a topic and share what you've learned. Do you get involved with talking at conferences and presentations or do you stick to the blog format as the way in which you explore a topic
0: hold on let me rewind just a little bit there you mentioned that a blog is a good way to see if you can explain what you know or to see if you know it well enough to explain it and kind of share it i think for me i see two types of motives behind writing one is as you say mm-hmm. you've got something that you know and you want to articulate it out for others The other is you have a question and you aren't sure what the answer is. So you turn to writing as a way to Mm. discover information. And for me, that latter type of writing is what's more exciting and more fun. It's definitely led to me being visible and therefore asked to speak and present or give workshops. But to be honest, I'm not really a Mm. great speaker. I'm not a great workshop leader. It's not my form. I do podcasts, but I'm not a, great at podcasts. I feel like these other activities just kind of come along for the ride. I'm not terrible at them either, but I feel like mm-hmm. my sweet spot is in the, the written form. I have stayed away from the tool wars. I have a post about reasons yeah. why I left DITA and it sort of branded me as as an enemy to DITA. Already did is a very polarizing topic, <laughs> but sometimes there are these posts that can just be landmines, but I don't think that my blog posts are really that influential. It's like, I really promote some ideas that get very little traction. I would love to influence people to embrace docs as code and to not devalue writing as a skill and I don't know, whatever else, but how do you measure that? How do you see if it's Mm. a drop in a bucket? If I go to a tech comm conference, yeah, sure. There are people who are at the conference who have read my blog and it's cool, but I step outside of that circle Mm. And yeah, it's not like anybody reads my blog. And then even for people who don't go to conferences <laughs> or in the tech comm career, often have no idea about my blog because their head's not in that constant online learning environment, or at least they're not into blogs as much. So I try not to get a big head about anything like that. I just kind of like having the little space online to promote my thoughts. Then it, on the yeah. other hand, though, I have been doing something lately that I I feel pretty excited about. I realized that, hey, I'm in a position to capture a lot of great feedback from people. And so I started doing more embedded surveys to gather their kind of agreement or disagreement in a more quantitative, measurable way. And that's been awesome to be able to throw out an idea and then include a survey and say, you know, do you agree, or not agree with this, and get immediate feedback to know if that idea has any merit or if people just disagree because i very well could be going off on the wrong direction with it and and a lot of times it has changed my thinking quite a bit
1: so you're doing this as a hobby when it comes to the time it takes to write your articles how much time do you spend on the research and the writing and and what makes you pick certain topics to look at rather than others
0: well you know longer posts can take a lot longer than shorter posts if you write a Mm. 500 to 1,000-word posts, you can crank that out in a couple hours in the evening and edit in the morning and hit publish, and you know it might just serve its purpose. If you want to write a 5,000-word post, it usually involves more research and could take a couple weeks off and on just visiting it and Mm -hmm. thinking about it and evolving your thoughts. The the sad thing about social media is that a a 1,000-word post and a 5,000-word post kind of have the same effect in terms of traffic. And this is why social media has polarizing effect in society is that it leads to the generation of a lot of short content that focuses in on controversies and clickbait titles because people will click that and read that. It's not really satisfying, but people kind of move from one little junk food post to another and it gathers Mm. clicks which generate views on ads and almost these posts are better because... If people come to your site and then they read the post and they're like, oh, this isn't really that great. Well, then they're looking to click elsewhere. And what do they click on? But maybe your ads. So whereas a long post, it's a different form. A lot of people don't really have 20 minutes to sit there reading a post, even if they, they would like to. But it can take a lot longer. So I, I'm sometimes mixed about this, the form, because I, I like longer posts, but they're hard to endure. And the, and the payoff isn't always as immediate and clear.
1: So you're now speaking or reading your posts as part of your podcast, the I'd rather be writing.com podcast. And podcasts tend to be, I guess, between 20 and 60 minutes, most podcasts are out there. I guess you're getting the the ability to take that long post that you're writing and deliver it in a format that maybe people do give it the time, the attention that it yeah, deserves.
0: Yeah, yeah, Definitely. I mean, I I listen to posts already. And so if somebody has a long post that they've written, I would love it if they would make an audio form of it, because then I could take it in at the pace that it sort of deserves instead of me just skimming it online when I'm reading it. And I'm also doing, well, I started to narrate some of my posts just for fun as a way to practice my reading, which as I mentioned, I don't think I'm very good at. And I know we've had some discussions about this, but, uh, (laughs) i started
1: (laughs) i disagree with that i I started to
0: to observe the metrics and there are a ton of clicks on these and so i was like Hmm. well maybe people are consuming content this way it's very interesting to just pay attention Hmm. to what people click on and so yeah if the audio version was getting as many clicks as the red version i was like i should probably continue this and then I used to do podcasts where I would interview people or record events or things like that. And I would often meet people who would say, I didn't know that you actually wrote blog posts too. And I was like, oh, okay. Anyway, uh, I just figure it's it's fun to do. Plus now I'm sort of tangentially working with some voice related stuff at work. Biotv has integrated all these voice capabilities where you can say, Alexa, show me the latest action movies or show me the football mm-hmm. game or something and you want to be able to to find stuff and so i'm sort of fascinated by this evolution of the way many inanimate objects are now becoming responsive to voice i just made my podcast an alexa skill a flash briefing skill for example and now if you have the alexa auto gadget in your car and you're driving and you're like hey what's the latest news it's a way to get podcasts now it's not a great you know podcast player but the idea that voice is becoming more and more important today, I think is definitely mm-hmm. there. And so I'm, I want to keep my foot in this audio realm and get better at it and understand better how things work because I, I definitely think the audio is in the future. And of course, yeah, I, I don't expect people to, to read a 5,000-word post, but if you're on your commute to work, I, I think people are much more mm-hmm. like open to longer forms like that.
1: Through practice you can get better at things like podcasts and presentations and writing as well. People do have perhaps some basic skills, but I think if somebody wanted to do a podcast of their own or write articles or present, then they should do it because the more they do it, the better they will get. So we've been talking about doing this podcast for a while and one of the things apart from finding the right time to do it has been finding a topic to talk about we said let's talk about one of your podcasts and i'll provide a link in the show notes and that was an article on your blog which was techcom trends take two it would be good to know what prompted you to write that article and also whether your opinions changed as a result of writing that article.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I started this series, my blog called Simplifying Complexity, and I wanted to probe really in depth the ways that we take complicated information and make it simple. And I had hmm. like eight or nine articles that really dove into this topic in depth. But I, I needed a way to make this more relevant because I realized that these articles weren't getting very many clicks. They weren't read as much. So Hmm. I wanted to connect it to more of a purpose, ground it more in more of a purpose. Why are we simplifying complexity? Well, I think that a lot of the tech writing jobs have shifted towards the developer domain where content is a lot more complicated. And given this context Hmm. of working with developer documentation, we need tools and and methods to simplify it. And especially if we're working as support to a primary engineering author, we really need, you know, more information on doing this. Well, I tried to give this context to why I was exploring simplifying complexity by talking about some of these trends with shifting towards the developer domain. I was putting all this together for a presentation. I was giving a an internal keynote to an SAP writer's conference. You know, I needed to put together a presentation for this. And the presentation went all right. But in getting responses to this post, which I wrote out and had like eight sections or eight parts, I found that um, most people just sort of agreed with me on all the, the simplifying complexity principles. It wasn't really the hot part of the content where I find people really um, gravitating and commenting and expressing agreement or disagreement. And so I had another presentation I was giving the following week on the same topic. And I decided that I wanted to focus in on the part that was most interesting to people. And that happened to be the trends. I know that trends are a hot Mm -hmm. topic from just every post I write on trends.
1: At the top of your post, you have a summary of what it is that is the essence of the article. It might be a good starting point to get a gist of what you've concluded as a result of looking at trends.
0: First of all, I'm fascinated by trends and how we seem mm. to really shift around things. For example, if you just look on the last 20 years, we've had huge trends. There was the trend of moving from PDF to online on the web. And then the emergence yeah. of DITA and this idea of the semantic web and XML and the ability to deliver the right content, the right people and place and time and everything. And then we see other shifts towards content strategies. Suddenly everybody is like a content strategist overnight. This huge mm-hmm. trend towards wikis. you know, Everybody is an author now. I think even every page is page one could be considered a trend where this people pretty mm-hmm. firmly believe that All users begin with a Google search and you have to make your content ready to start right in the middle. And we've seen trends about augmented reality, probably more commonly associated with machinery type documentation and hardware. And we see trends towards docs as code, treating documentation tools just like code. Well, how do you decide whether something's a fad or is here to really stay. And as I started to dive into this, I realized that in all the posts I'd ever written about trends, I never had solid evidence to back up any of my claims. It was just kind of like, oh, I think APIs are going to shift around (laughs) the landscape and everybody's going to move into developer doc. People might say, no, I haven't seen this movement or, oh, I agree with you or no, this is what I'm seeing. Well, trends, they're all over the place. So how do you figure out Hmm. which direction we're really moving. And, you know, are things getting more complex or is UX making things simpler? I decided to look into how academics have tackled this because they have a similar problem. They are trying to prepare their students to be ready to meet the demands of the workplace as soon as they graduate. And so they have to have a keen awareness of what skills are desired from these people. And the way academics pretty much approach this trends topic is to look at job advertisements and say, what are employers looking for in job ads? What do they really want? Do they want somebody who knows chatbots? I mean, is that really a demand? If so, we should definitely incorporate this into our curriculum. Are the people looking for candidates that have a strong programming background? And so there have been a few studies where researchers meticulously comb through hundreds of job advertisements and they code them for keywords Mm. and they present their findings. And one of these findings that seems to crop up more often than not is this dilemma between, should I specialize or just be a generalist? Mm. And I honed in on that because I thought it was perfectly captured the tensions that I had felt in my role doing developer documentation. And my argument is that, well, at least in that post, is that things are shifting towards this developer domain. Things are getting complex. And as a result, more specialists are going to be writing and contributing to writing. And if tech writers are generalists, then we will be playing more editorial slash publishing support roles guiding this content. That was where I ended that sort of argument.
1: To challenge that approach. A lot of jobs are not advertised and the ones that are not advertised often are the ones that have the main skills that are easy to fill. And if somebody can't fill a job through word of mouth, then they'll possibly go to an agency and say that we want them. So I think there's a danger that the jobs that you see are the ones that are hard to fill, that are the ones with the skills that people don't have. And I think we need to be careful when looking at job adverts. If it says somebody needs to have the ability to code in five programming languages to do APIs, assume that's what everyone will need to do. And the reason why that job is up there is because no one has those skills and they're desperately trying to find someone to do that. So,
0: yeah, I'm Um, actually really curious to hear more of your perspective, because I know that Kerry Leaf is like a staffing agency. You provide the resources,
1: right? Part of what we do is act as a, a specialist recruitment agency placing permanent and contracts. Do you regularly
0: authors. work with job descriptions and that employers have or is it more, more word of mouth that they just reach out to you and describe
1: what they are looking for? So they will contact us. So we'll get people that know us on a on a regular basis. They know we provide good authors that are right for the job and who stay. And those type of job descriptions pretty general descriptions, good writing skills, good time management skills, when they're recruiting, a lot of emphasis on will the person fit into the team. Now in the UK we tend to have smaller software companies, not the large ones of the Microsofts and the Amazons, so I think fitting in culturally within, the culture of an organisation is still quite important within you. UK software companies. So I think there's a a lot of emphasis or interest in, in that area. And then we'll get other job vacancies where people contact us out of the blue and they've had the job advertised somewhere. They've had it on their website or somewhere else and they've just not been able to find somebody. And part of that can be that the job description puts everybody off. They're asking for unicorns. They just don't exist. And they don't have the contacts within the right areas to do that so what we're doing in that area part of it is providing conduit to the networks where these people exist but also what we're doing is we're rewriting the job description to explain it in the sense that a technical author would understand and perhaps or in some situations de-emphasize things that might put them off And in some situations with some clients say, look, you're never going to find somebody who can code in five different programming languages. If we find somebody who can do Python, can you live with that? Often they'll compromise. So in the job description, it appears they want the moon on the stick, as it were. But in reality, they will compromise and have somebody that's technically strong and got the writing skills. So what you see in a job advert might not necessarily be the reality of the person that they want but having said that in the sample sizes that you've been talking about from an academic perspective thousands and thousands of job descriptions so they might be balancing the sheer volume of job descriptions might be accounting for those those odd things that well, we well no,
0: first of all it's not thousands and second of all the when yeah. academics do research they tend to do research about the larger technical communication umbrella And so they very rarely will narrow it down to technical writer. In fact, you know, they're going to include grant writer and medical writer and even social media person, Mm. at least in the studies that I was looking at. Now, your objections about using the job ad as a real source of truth, Mm. you know, has holes in it, as you you pointed out, right? It's like people are looking for unicorns and that's Mm. the job ad is their wish list. It's not necessarily what they'll, what they really need or can get by with. Yeah. Another approach that some academics take is talking with industry professionals, like talking with hiring managers and getting a consensus from some mm-hmm. thought leaders about what they're looking for and what are the common skills and then taking like a, the commonality from this, which mm. I don't know. I I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about that. For example, we're hiring at our work right now. We're trying to fill a position. This has been really interesting from a direct experience point of view, we haven't had to hire for a position for a long time. And hmm. it's made me think, well, what is it we want? What are, are the basic skills? And hmm. how well does do these requirements correlate with everybody else's requirements of what they're looking for? I find the writing skills one really fascinating. And this is something I've been trying to resolve in my mind. You mentioned that, you know, writing skills are par for the course, that all of our candidates have good writing skills, right? We wouldn't put a candidate forward who had bad writing skills. So when we get this uh, slew of candidate resumes coming in, we're asking for writing samples. And we look yep. at the writing samples, and it's hard to really tell the quality of the writing from a short sample, especially for product I'm not using and unfamiliar with and have no idea if it was a collaborative effort or solo author or what Hmm. the history is, really. The reason I'm mixed about this is because even though we take writing skills for granted, I think what I really want, I want a rock star tech writer, somebody who can write extremely well, but who's also got a solid like technical grounding Typically, writing skills are dismissed as generalist skills. But I think that to write well in the developer domain, you have to have deep technical knowledge. Otherwise, you just can't write. You end up being a secretary or an editor for other people doing the writing. So writing has to be combined with knowledge. Imagine like an academic article in a journal, right? It's not like the person has an ability to write and they just crank that out. No, they combine their writing skills mm. with a deep knowledge of a subject area. So I think people in this tension between, should I be a specialist or generalist? People tend to define specializations around skills such as, oh, I'm a, I'm an info architect. I'm a usability specialist. I'm an information design specialist. Well, what employers want mm. are subject matter domain specialists, I think, who can bring that subject matter expertise to... Combine it with their writing prowess to great documentation.
1: We've got products for technical audiences, products for developers, which is the world that you're in. And then we've got products, as it were, for the mass public, for the, the average end user. And for the average end user, I would argue that things have got a lot simpler. Products are much more intuitive. Now, it seems to be the move and the trend at the moment is selling data, doing APIs, and aiming at a developer audience. So I think what you say about people needing technical skills is true when it is for a developer audience, but that isn't what all of technical authoring is about. There is the still the world of the end user, the average person on the street. And in that area, I think usability skills and user experience and integrating the help with the product is directing people not so much to be technically adept, but more empathetic with the end user and having those usability skills as well as the writing yeah, skills. Yeah.
0: I agree with you that if your job is targeting the end user, then yeah, you don't need deep technical knowledge. You really need strong language mm. skills. And you mentioned somewhere previously that there's a lot of like UX copywriting and interface writing needs mm. that a lot of people are filling. And, and yeah, just especially in those roles, you don't need to know programming languages you need to be able to speak and relate to the Mm. user and there's definitely like a growing need for ux copywriting i think a lot of ux designers Mm. have not excluded technical writers and other wordsmiths from this domain in an attempt to you know make a completely Mm. intuitive design that doesn't need docs no instead they're like championing language specialists to come in and play a part in designing an awesome interface right right I mean, the UX person doesn't want to just, they want all the error messages to be reader-friendly and helpful, and they're they're partners. They're not like competitors. But I sort of have this idea in my mind that, well, if the UX discipline has really made apps for end users and other people easier, then could it Mm -hmm. be said that we've reduced the need for technical writers in the end user domain, and therefore the writing jobs for technical writers have shifted more towards these areas of complexity in the developer domain and other more technical audiences where we don't have ux designers i mean when people release an sdk when developers do an sdk there's very infrequently any kind of code design review where people weigh matters of usability about how easy it's going to be to actually use the code it's just like no it compiles it works you know let's push it out never mind that it's completely convoluted and impossible to like explain and understand.
1: I would argue that a lot of the content is there, but it's not necessarily in a help file or in a user manual. It's moved to the user interface, but there is a challenge for technical writers in that domain in that to do usability and user experience. Generally the people doing that are people that have come out of university, having skills in studying the usability of products the impact on changing things to end users and many technical writers technical authors don't have that skill in researching and testing and measuring the impact of if the content's on the left or if it's on the right or if it's two sentences or five sentences and so I think there's a challenge there for technical writers to adapt to that I think another aspect is there was a research article done years ago that was saying that technical authors often span across different departments. They have to engage with the developers of the product, marketing, engineering, training. And the best technical authors have the ability to hop across different departments. And I think many authors by nature are introverted and can sometimes struggle to be that person that can go across all of the areas and i think that might be leading some to try and find a safer area where they can just write and therefore want to look at the more technical areas and the more specialist areas where within the developer documentation you can many ways just get your head down or talk to subject matter expert and do writing without that need to be leading and telling different departments well you should be doing this that and the other
0: yeah well these are such interesting questions because i sort of been looking at my career and have been trying to decide what i should specialize in i was just reading an article this mm. morning by craig bear on what is the core identity of tech comm. and he says most tech comm people pretty much have skills in information design knowledge management information architecture and they may specialize in some of these but these are very common skills and um yet uh, if you wanted to specialize even more some people take on usability or user experience design or interface design and specialize that like for myself i don't really know how i want to define myself if i think that being a generalist is the best way to go does that mean i read widely on all the different product domains and become familiar but not really knowledgeable in so many different categories, is that going to lend itself to cross-pollination and you know better big picture and flow kind of information? Or is it better to specialize in something like doc tooling? I set up the whole Jekyll site theme and help define workflows and so forth. Is that going to be the most productive or should I just pick a, a programming language really dive deep into android or something and you know narrow my focus on shops that have that need i'm not really sure what the best way to go is and i think a lot of people are trying to figure that out
1: one thing that's sure is that technology will change you used to i don't know if you still do you used to do consultancy and work in wordpress and now you're doing development in jekyll and jekyll will have its day and something else will come along so My philosophy is do stuff that you enjoy, that you're good at and and focus on that because you'll be happy in your work. But be prepared that you will need to, to reskill and relearn. We're doing a lot of work now with API documentation rather than for Windows applications. Again, because that's where a lot of development software development is these days. And it's actually becoming in some ways less technical than it was before. At the beginning, it was a lot of the focus, well, it's the reference documentation. You must have the code samples and in the different languages. What it's becoming more for us now is the documentation says, what does this product do, who it's for, why I should use it, how I sign up for it, does it cost anything, and more the that front-end stuff. And issues around providing the code samples, you can, through products like Postman, and some others actually put the swagger file into those products and it will generate code samples for C, for Ruby, for, for Python automatically. And the code might not be very good, but it's a starting point where you can give that developer and say, are you happy with that? Or do you want it changed? It's going back in some ways to the, the bread and butter of a technical copywriter or a technical author in explaining to a user what it's about and the, the more technical stuff, in some ways, is being generated algorithmically, automatically. I don't know if you found that or, or oh, no. No, us. I
0: agree that definitely there. I actually just taught a full day API workshop to a group of about twenty people up in Menlo Park. What I observed was that most of the people were really interested in Open API and Swagger. Those were like recurrent themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, either developers were giving them a Swagger file, which you know, it's the right name as an open API specification document or the, the writers had to figure out how they were going to publish these or how to integrate them into their doc tooling or things were very focused around that. And I think that itself is, Greatly uh, simplified a lot of the authoring around APIs, REST APIs, because it's like a, a form to fill out. It's like you've just got to complete certain fields in a specification, and put a few descriptions, mm. and and you can generate out you know half of the documentation. The other half, of course, is all the things you mentioned. Mm. The how do I authenticate? And rate limits, and yes. throttling, and getting started and tutorials, and how do I actually use the API? And interdependencies and things like that. But yeah, in some Mm. ways, I'm glad to see that there's some kind of convergence on a standard and that's hopefully going to simplify things. You know, API documentation is also one of those things that I've thought, oh, maybe I I should specialize in that, becoming an, an API doc writer. I mean, I've already got this course. and it's mind boggling to see Mm -hmm. how much more traffic goes to my API doc site than to my blog. I mean, it gets more traffic than my blog and Mm -hmm. it dwarfs the traffic on the simplifying complexity by like thousand percent or more. Mm -hmm. It's definitely like a skill that people want, even though when I look at postman and I have some postman activities in the workshop, it is super simple to use postman and curl and it's not rocket science. It's more quantifiable as a skill. Whereas writing, it's hard to design a workshop around like information synthesis and analysis and integration and simplification and all these, you know, high level analytical tasks that are really difficult. And I think at the core of my skill set, I want to be a better writer. And what frustrates me is that I think, oh, I'm going to bank my skills in writing. Uh, it's just devalued. It's like, nah, nobody cares about that. Everybody can write. It's this constant dilemma. I think I just am am calling it the wrong thing. Information design or something, right?
1: To search for writing skills on a CV automatically is very hard to do. And a lot of selection now is automated. And with IT and with developers, you can search on keywords. You can search on, do they have C? Do they have expertise in middleware? And you can do that filtering. You can't do that, is somebody a good writer? You have to read the CV and infer, is the writing clear? Or you look at the experience that they've got or talk to them. So I think as the selection process is being automated, that devalues or de-emphasises writing skills because you can't measure those using those particular skills. We've assumed that people are hiring us because we are writers, but sometimes I think people have hired us because we're the only people that know how to use Flair are only people who know how to use Jekyll or, or a RoboHelp. It's been the technical tools knowledge that has attracted mm. people.
0: Yeah, I can see where you're coming from when you say that it's not really a measure that is easy to evaluate. It doesn't compute whether somebody has good skills, or mediocre skills, and how needed those will be. One thing that has come mind here is a point of feedback I get that people really want mm. candidates to have this sense of, technical aptitude, technical acuity. I mean, you're still a generalist if you have technical aptitude, but presumably you're like more tech savvy than somebody who just has writing skills. And that aptitude would stand out as more specialist skills.
1: I think what the writer has to do is understand the end user and understand what it is that they want. If you're writing for the general public, you as a writer can represent the general public pretty easily and you can you can think if this what questions do I have they're going to be the ones that anybody has. If you're talking about technical products and middleware and uh, stacks and aspects like that, you need to have an appreciation of the type of information that a developer would want and not every author has that. They either have to have a developer background or they have to learn to appreciate what it is a developer the questions they're going to have and, and make sure they address them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of some other experience earlier in my career. You mentioned WordPress and I used to do, I used to do a lot of WordPress mm. consulting back on back when WordPress was still a cool platform. <laughs> that's a, that's a harsh take <laughs> on them. Uh, but I remember one project where the guy, somebody hired me to create a site for his fishing lures and I created the site. Fairly easily, I think I used an existing theme and configured it, and all, and charged him whatever mm. I charged him. But then he was like, "Oh, you're a writer too," and he said, "Well, why don't you write the copy too? Write it for you know six to ten pages." Mm. And I was like, oh, "Okay, I'm going to charge him like a thousand bucks for this." And the amount that I could charge for the writing was not a whole lot compared to how much more work it was than the technical tasks. I mean, it was a lot harder to write the content. But in the Mm. client's mind, it was like, I'll just write it myself. Even though in the end of the day, what's going to sell the fishing lures? The site or the copy, Mm. right? The copy is going to sell the fishing lures.
1: Mm. There's a website called Clients from Hell. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's mainly about graphics designers, but it's also copywriters. And it's war stories from clients that have devalued their services. And it's essentially quotations of things that clients have said to them. Sometimes technical authors think they have it bad. You read this and you think, thank goodness I'm not a graphics designer, because that is an area where there's a lack of appreciation of the time and effort that can be required to creating visual yeah, images.
0: Another reason people may not value writing is because we value the things we can't do ourselves. This is a lot of the reason why we value programmers, because like, oh, we can't write that program ourselves. We need you know, some expert. And with documentation tooling and publishing, it definitely falls in this category of things that people usually can't do themselves. I mean, I am constantly surprised at even among technical writers, how few of them understand the technical tools. It's almost like the tool people are a subset of tech comm and uh, it's like they're a band of people who think similar in some cohesive
1: ways. Mark Baker would argue and has argued in his Britain Book on Writing, that you should take away all of the technical aspects of writing and move that to a different area. Let the writer just focus on writing for the user and the audience, and not in the writing that they're doing, worry about the technical aspects, and then either delegate that, the technical aspects to somebody else or to software, or deal with that at another time than the time that they're actually writing just being able to focus on the user and the audience and writing there is a school of thought that that's not necessarily yeah, a bad yeah. thing
0: well somebody has to do this separation of concerns somebody's got to focus on handle the tooling so that it works and can be seamless and not get in the way but mm-hmm. yeah i mean i agree with that like you don't want everybody reinventing mm-hmm. the wheel in fact when i got to amazon i was really confused why i had to even do any work at all with our publishing solution we had 250 writers and we didn't already have a seamless like system that just worked behind the scenes to just create and publish and distribute content what of course aws (laughs) their organization does have that but the rest of amazon was like tribal and and people just have to well i wouldn't say tribal more like lots of little startups within a larger company and they, they can have the autonomy to do what they want but that comes at a cost right
1: I guess the other downside for technical writers is it's seen as a cost. If you're a copywriter and you, as a result of the copy that you write, lead to more sales, then it's easier for people to buy into paying for it. So your Fisher lure person should have really seen that, well, if the copy's better on getting more lures sold, then it's worth the cost. It's, it's tricky yeah. when it's um, end user documentation. Yeah. I think we've probably covered a good chunk of... Content. no i yeah, I, I, I
0: we have had a good discussion and uh you know i'm excited to see you doing podcasts i've listened to your recent interviews with recent one with kirsty taylor and the one you did with matthew ellison they're great they're great yeah. keep it up they're thank enjoyable you. i think you do a great job at podcasts so
1: well thank you they're good fun to do they're interesting they're good reasons to talk to people that you like admire or you want to pick their brains The interviews are the hardest ones to arrange because it involves finding a subject, finding people's time to do these. We'd like to do more, but it is tricky to arrange them.
0: I think podcasts, they may not have as many reads as maybe a written post sometimes, but I think they're Mm. two or three times as powerful. It's much more of a close experience when you're listening to somebody's voice speak in an extensive way. I know that the podcasts I listen to feel like I know that person. And I think it's great. I think businesses Mm. are kind of like recognizing that, hey, if we just do this podcast and it's good, it's going to have a tremendous impact. But yeah, it's hard to measure exactly what that is beyond just the analytics because people are are listening and they're not usually at their computer. And so it's hard to get feedback.
1: I guess we'll wrap it up at that time. So, Tom, lovely to speak to you again. It's 2012 since we actually (laughs) met face-to-face. It's amazing how long time flies. Yeah, thanks
0: for inviting me onto this podcast. It's always fun. You know, it's it's very flattering to be asked questions. It makes me feel important. (laughs) So thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Tom.